You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to One Hour at a Time. Uh, it is now April 7th and um, it's sun is actually out in New Hampshire and it's almost 50 degrees, so we're happy. Um, I'd like to welcome you all to our show today. Uh, we have a wonderful guest with us who is going to talk to us about her book and also about um, the family perspective of living with the disease of addiction. Um, last week we talked about some effective treatments for uh, families and individuals that that have a mental illness or co-occurring substance use disorders or is just substance use disorders. And today we're going to get the family perspective. So I'd like to welcome Cheryl McGinnis, who is the author of I Am Your Disease, which is a book about um, 40 families experienced with alcoholism and drug addiction, I believe, Cheryl? That is true, Mary. And first of all, I want to thank you immensely for having me on the show to talk to people about addiction. Well, you're very welcome. Um, this is a very powerful book as it really talks about the family's perspective. And I was wondering if you would begin by telling us um, why why did you read the book or why did you write the book? Well, I wish I could give you a really definitive reason for writing the book, but I can't remember the first time the idea popped in my head to do it. But I wrote the book basically, to tell all of the not-in-my-family people and the if he had been raised better, he would not have turned to drugs-type people to let them know that, yes, this can indeed happen in their family because, after all, we raised two boys and only one had an addiction problem. They were raised exactly the same. And the kids in my book were good kids from the right side of the tracks who got derailed by drugs. And it just shows that this can happen to anyone, and no matter how vigilant you are, you know, how much, no matter how many uh, times you talk to your kids about drugs, no matter how close you are. I mean, we did everything that the experts say today to raise drug-free children, and yet one of my my children still turned to drugs. So I wrote the book so that others who are struggling and living with an addicted person can understand that they're not alone and the feelings that they're experiencing uh, are not unique to them. Everyone goes through this, and we just basically wanted everyone to, well, we wanted to get addiction out of the closet. You know, years ago, I can remember, and I'm old enough to remember many years ago when cancer was spoken of in hushed terms. And... Now that's how addiction is, and we want addiction to come out of the closet and realize that, hey, good kids do drugs too. It's not just the so-called derelicts or the bad kids. Um, A lot of people do drugs. Maybe you could just tell our audience a little bit about um, your your son, both of your sons. Um, How much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) We have an hour, so we have lots of time. Well, my son, uh, like yourself, my son was a registered nurse. And first he was an EMT. He graduated first in his class from EMT school. Then he took the EMT to paramedic course, which he just loved. 
being a paramedic because he was an adrenaline junkie. He loved being able to get on the ambulance and go out and help people and save lives. But then that wasn't enough for him, so he decided he wanted to be a nurse. And he took the paramedic to RN one-year program, became a registered nurse. And he was a very kind, loving, very compassionate person. But when he was 17, and I feel good that we managed to get him all those years without doing drugs, but he had his own band, and he was a phenomenally talented musician. And on his 17th birthday, one of his older bandmates laid out a line of cocaine for him. And even though I had talked to them over and over again, uh, back in the middle 80s, crack cocaine was just coming into prominence in uh, Florida. And we had long talks. And I said, please, whatever you do, you know, do not do that. I said, you can die. There are some people who will die on the first hit of cocaine. All right, maybe it's not the norm, but it can happen. And you're playing Russian roulette. And they promised me, you know, they, they wouldn't do anything. And then on his 17th birthday, his older bandmate, Ron, gave him this hit of cocaine. And he just was instantly addicted. He could not get enough of this drug. And he told me, he said, and Mom, after I tried it, he said, and I didn't die, he said, well, then I didn't believe you. So he had it all. I mean, he had the world by the tail. It was drop-dead gorgeous. Had a, uh, he could charm the birds out of the trees. Amazing personality of 150 IQ. He was a wonderful son. If he had $10, then he gave you five. And that's just the type of person that he was. And he was so kind. He, every stray animal we have in the house, you know, was because of him <laughs> bringing it home. He'd say, oh, Mom, I found this beautiful cat, and it's the most beautiful cat you've ever seen, and he's been abused. Can I bring him home? And I'd say, okay, sure, Scott. And in the door, he would walk with the most ordinary-looking cat you ever saw. <laughs> but to him, they were all beautiful. So, And that's another thread that I found amongst all the kids in my book. They were extremely kind and compassionate and sensitive, and most of them lacked self-esteem. In your writing, you said that when Scott first took uh, cocaine, he said that drugs made him feel like what he felt normal people felt like. Exactly. you know what was going on with Scott that when he didn't feel normal? No, I mean, you would never know it. You'd, you would never have known it from the outside. I do know, though, when he was about nine years old, I took him, excuse me, I took him to our family doctor and I said, you know, is Scott hyperactive? Back then we didn't say ADD. Uh-huh. It was, you know, hyperactive because he couldn't sit still. He'd watch a movie and, you know, partway through it he had to get up and do something else. And, you know, he was just always hyper. And my family doctor, you know, gave him a checkup and everything and he said, no, he's just a normal, very active little boy. You know, I should have listened to my mom instincts because I just knew that it wasn't quite right. But he didn't exhibit any signs of low self-esteem. He didn't act like he felt any different from anyone else. He was extremely popular. Our phone rang off the hook all the time. And so that's what makes it so difficult to determine what kids do have these problems when they act very normal to you. But there's something going on which... I am not a doctor, I'm not a nurse, 
not a research scientist, but to me, I think it was something genetic. Right. And I think that's the reason he just didn't feel quite normal. Plus, he was very opinionated, and he grew up in the country and with all the other little country boys, but he was, his thought processes that he's thinking was different from the other kids. And like he said, Mom, you know, kids don't want to be different from other kids. But he was. He had a, he was just different from the other ones. And I think that's what helped, you know, give him this bad self-image. And different in what way? Well, he, we grew up in a, we took him to, we grew up in New Jersey, and then they were about four, three and four, we moved to North Carolina, and it was in the Bible Belt. And all these kids were very, very religious, and our family isn't. So he would offer his opinions and what he felt, and these were his opinions, not mine, because I let my kids go to church, do what they want, make up their own minds. But he had his own thoughts, and he was you know, ostracized sometimes and made fun of. Yet on the other hand, he was enormously popular. So he just was a different thinking person, and uh, I think that really did lead to his feelings of, you know, low his low self-esteem. And yet there's other kids in my book who were religious, went to church, they didn't have that problem. They also had very low self-esteem. So there's a problem there somewhere. You know, I'm not an expert, I don't know what it is, but there's definitely an internal problem. Right. And in... In your writing, you talked about Scott uh, in a couple of different ways being an, an adrenaline junkie yes. in terms of the paramedic and the rush you get when yes. you arrive on the scene. He did bungee dump, jumping yes. and skydiving. And, yep. and so that search for that rush, yes. in hindsight, is, is a real red flag. Yes, in hindsight, exactly. You know, who, who would have thought he would have turned to drugs because he was getting his thrills by doing other things. Right. Now we know better. Now I, I wish there had been a book like this when we were going through this. Maybe I would have understood better. I'm not saying I could have saved my son. Only my son could have saved him. So, okay. But I think I would have understood a lot more. Well, and knowing that addiction is a brain disease, it, when, when you think about the adrenaline rush and chasing the adrenaline rush, yeah. we know that there's something in the brain there that there's a deficit that yeah. if you're... If you're chasing something, it means that there's something in your brain that you don't have enough of. Well, the dopamine. Right. That's the main thing. And, and, you know, they've done studies to show there are key differences in the brain of an addicted person and someone who's not addicted. And, you know, studies they've done with rats and so forth. And um, they did one study with these rats and the impulsive rats, when they were introduced to drugs and given the opportunity to take them, they were much more likely to do so than the rats with more dopamine receptors. So, as I said, it's something internal, it's something genetic, and there was just something missing in my son's makeup that caused him to want to do this. And like I said, he was just, he could not get enough of cocaine when he first, very first time he tried it. Um, was Scott, did he ever go for treatment? Oh, yeah, we had him in rehabs. Uh, the instant we found out that he was doing anything, you know, immediately to rehab, unfortunately, our insurance would only pay for one week, which, you know, is not enough. Right. And I think we had him 
during the 14 years that he struggled with addiction, we had him in five different rehabs. The last one was a three-week rehab over in Pensacola, Florida, and it cost us $10,000. Uh-huh. And you cannot take a person who's been addicted for 14 years and cure them in three weeks. Right. All it did was, you know, drain our pocketbook. Right. Right. So, yeah, we, we did. We, we, we did everything we could. And what was Scott's response to treatment? Actually, the last... Oh, when he was in the rehab, you know, he was uh, just all full of it. You know, this is it. He's going to be one of the 2% because they had physicians come to the rehab and tell them that only 2% of heroin addicts, by this time he had graduated heroin, Uh only 2% will... We'll be right back with with Sherry, and she'll finish um, telling us about Scott's response to treatment. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you're looking for a better way to clean the air in your home or office, you need the all-new ozone light. It's as simple as changing your light bulbs. The ozone light looks like a normal spiral type of light bulb. It screws in most standard light sockets, but it's not a normal light bulb. It's coated with titanium dioxide. It's completely safe, but this unique coating kills most airborne bacteria, mold spores, and neutralizes odors. Just one light cleans the air in an entire room and lasts eight times longer than the normal light bulb. If you have smokers, if you have allergies, if you have pet odors, mold, or mildew, you need the ozone light. It will wipe them out, and you have our word. If you're not satisfied with the way the ozone light cleans the air in your home, simply return it for a full refund. Here's the number to call to order. 800-380-4259. 800-380-4259. Save up to $100 now. 800 4259 800-380-4259. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. We're uh, talking today with uh, Sherry McGinnis, who wrote the book, I Am Your Disease, which we're discussing, and we're also discussing her experience with her family um, experience with, with addiction. And before we went to commercial, Cheryl was telling us about her son, Scott, and uh, when he was in treatment, you were mentioning that doctors would come 
and talked about 2% of the people who would, who would recover. Yes, right, only 2%. And my son was determined that he was going to be one of the 2% because everything Scott ever attempted, he achieved. And uh, no matter what he wanted, and then when he became a nurse, you know, he got offered all these wonderful jobs, even ones that he was made a charge nurse almost immediately over other people because, you know, he just, he was good uh-huh. and he succeeded. So he just figured he would succeed in being one of the 2% who would beat the heroin addiction. Uh-huh. And he just wasn't. You know, I always said Scott was the best at everything that he went after. So I guess it shouldn't have surprised me that he would also be the best drug addict also. He, you know, you know what I'm saying there. He just... <laughs> You had mentioned earlier about your insurance covering one yes. one week of treatment, and when you know, really, what what most people face is discrimination when it comes to treatment for addiction, be it from this, the insurance industry or even from the the healthcare industry. Yes. Um, and I wondered if you wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the um, discrimination that that you experienced. Oh, there, there's definitely. A major stigma. I I mentioned in the book that you know it's bad enough to survive your child and you know to, to lose somebody, but then we suffer a double whammy because our children died of an unacceptable disease. And you know, had it been cancer or something else, people would say, oh, you know, that they'd feel sorry for us, and okay, they would understand. But with addiction, their attitude is, well, nobody made him take those drugs. Okay, my point is most addicted people start down this path when they're children. And what the children do, they make mistakes. They experiment. They feel that they're invincible. Nothing's ever going to happen to them. And as my son Scott said to me, Mom, nobody wakes up one day and says, I think I'll be a drug addict. That just does not occur to them. And, you know, a lot of kids will try drugs just the heck of it, and, you know, it's, they think it's cool, but we're finding out that a lot of these kids who start drugs are doing it to self-medicate themselves. They, they recognize they have a problem, they can't really identify it, but they know they're different, and, you know, quite often, and you would know this too, Mary, quite often, uh, drug addiction and mental illness go hand in hand, Right. and that's right. why we're trying to get insurance parity for the addicted people, too, but the insurance companies don't want to pay for it. But it's like people who get lung cancer who may have started smoking when they were, you know, 11, 12 years old, and they're going to get lung cancer. Well, they don't suffer the slings and arrows that we do, the parents of addicted children, because they were doing drugs, but it seems to be okay to get cancer or diabetes if, you know, if you have a really bad, um, if your diet is bad. You eat all those sugary things and get diabetes. People won't put you down, but as soon as they hear drugs, they immediately think of these seedy people, you know, in the stairwells and hanging out on the streets and looking horrible. But these kids, most of them came from really good homes whose parents loved them. Right. Right. But the stigma is there. Right. And that that affects, as you said, the the whole family because after Scott passed away, you were left with a double whammy of having lost your son, but also 
you took on that stigma and and and, and people saw you as a disease as well. Yes, exactly. And addiction is a family disease. And my son used to say, "Mom, this isn't about you, it's about me." But he was wrong in that respect because it is about us. It's about the family. You can't live with an addicted person and not be affected. You know, watching your child that you've brought into the world and your whole thing as a mom or dad is to protect them. But this is something you can't protect them against. Right. This right. is this is a really bad boo-boo that won't be fixed very quickly. And I've since found out, I realize now that in order to overcome addiction, the addicted person has to be 100% committed 24-7. It's not like going on a diet. You can fall off one day and then resume tomorrow. You know, get back on track. Not with addiction. You have to work it. No matter what your program is, if you go to AA, if you're doing it on your own, anything, you have to do it 100%. And my son didn't. And a lot of the kids in the book didn't because the drugs made them feel so good. Right, right, right. And I think that that's, that's the key for a lot of the kids who start using substances early. As your son said, it made them feel normal. Yes. And um, we know that this is a brain disease. We know that there's something that's going on in the brain that's different for these kids than for right. other kids. And when did you and your family first begin to understand this as a brain disease and not a moral, you know. Well, well, it wasn't until after our son died, unfortunately. I wish that I had known. I wish I had had a lot more insight when he was going through it. And instead, I would just get angry. And uh, he came in late from curfew one time when he was about 18. And I was just so angry. I just punched him. I just kept punching him on the arm because I was so, so upset with him. I wouldn't do that today. Today, I understand why he went out and did the drugs. I'm not saying I condone that, but I understand. I have a much greater understanding now of addiction, that it is a brain disease. I mean, you can look at the PET scans and whatever of a so-called normal person's brain and the addicted person's brain. There's a huge difference. So they are finding out more and more, and it is a disease. It's a brain disease, which can be treated, but that requires a tremendous, tremendous uh, effort on the drug-addicted person's part. And, yes, and we know that uh, the treatment involves many things. It involves yeah. housing and medication and support and education, and it really takes a, a community, if you will, for people to recover. But it's hard when a lot of the community is against you. That's right. That's you know, right. I wonder, my son... He was taken to the emergency room the night he died. And I often wonder to myself, did the doctors work as hard as they would to revive him? Had he been in an accident or had been something else? Or did they just figure, well, look at the track marks on his arm, say, you know, just another drug addict. Right. So right. He, he wasn't just another drug addict. You know, he was my son. Yeah. And a very successful person in his own right. Oh, extremely... He wanted to be a physician, which he would have been had it not been for the drugs because right. he was so smart. And the fact that he got his RN, he was what they call a functioning addict, 
and the fact that he got his RN didn't even have to work for it hardly. You know, he was just that smart. He could have had anything. Right. And yet the drugs took it all away from him. Um, you had mentioned that even now, if people will refer to your good, your good son and your bad son, what is that like? I have had, I lost a friend, as a matter of fact, because she did, and I'll say that she made the mistake of referring to my older son as my good son and my youngest son as my bad son. And he wasn't bad. He had a disease. He was really a very good kid. And it was the drugs that made him do things that he would not not even thought of doing before he became addicted. Like I said, he was generous, he was kind. Uh, one time he was at a party when he was younger and someone had taken, uh, it was an apartment complex, and someone took a little kit and threw it up way up in the air so it landed and got hurt. It took four or five kids to take my son off of that kid. He was beating him so bad. He was just so compassionate, right. and he was a good person. So to hear someone say, oh, he's a bad son, yeah, sure. Like, it was right to my heart. Right, right, right. You know, I know a lot of the um, moms that we work with here at Westbridge, they'll say even today, you know, they'll hear something, um, you know, like their their son or daughter makes, you know, makes a, a poor choice or, you know, they're, they're not following the, the treatment plan. And they, the first thing is the guilt and uh, they're just waiting for somebody to point their finger at them because yes. throughout, you know, their, their child's upbringing, they've always felt like in some way um, the schools, the doctors are looking at them as you're the cause or you're the problem. Oh, sure. There's one of my friends who lost a son She's in a class at night, and uh, one of the people in the class uh, even came out and said that, that it's the parents' fault when the kids turn to drugs. But how could we have raised two children if it was our fault? Why didn't both my kids turn to drugs? Right, right. So, no, it isn't, especially when you raise them exactly the same. And our kids, they had a great upbringing. As a matter of fact, my son, Scott, he even told us, he said, Mom and Daddy, so I want to thank you so much. So I had the most wonderful childhood, something that Huckleberry Finn would envy. He said, but I ruined it by my choices, and I just can't turn back the time. He said, but I really would like to. And most of those kids did, you know, well, in fact, all the kids, they all wanted to turn back the time. But you can't. Right. As a mom, how do you move beyond this? How do you get over that, losing well, your... You know, you never get over it. And as far as moving beyond, I don't think anyone ever really does move beyond it. It's with me every day. Um, It's been, well, December 1st was five years since we lost our son. Uh, Excuse me, I'm getting emotional right now. (laughs) But, no, you don't get beyond it. You don't get over it. You just learn. You get stronger. You get stronger and you learn how to put on your game face. And people look at you and say, oh, God, I'm so glad you're doing really well. You've really gotten better. But they don't know what's going on inside. We have just gotten better putting on what we call the mask. Uh And we mask our feelings because nobody wants to to see their friend be sad or upset. So in order to protect them, we say we're fine. Right, right. 
We'll be right back with more of Sherry McGinnis's story, and we'll learn more about some of the other Family Center book and how I Am Your Disease came about. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. For the most current and up-to-date information and options in childbearing, family health, and parenting, tune in to Celeste Ranese's Timely Topics in Childbirth, broadcasting every Wednesday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. If you don't know your options, you don't have any. Voice America Network proudly presents The Catherine Zox Show. For women, men, children, and families, Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Our guest today is Cheryl McGinnis, who is the author of I Am Your Disease. And Cheryl is on a quest to help other families and um, children get past the stigma and discrimination that she and her family felt as a result of her son's um, brain disease of addiction. Cheryl, how did you come up with the title, I Am Your Disease? Well, I'll tell you, I, I belong to two uh, online online grief support groups. And in one of them, somebody sent me this little narrative called I Am Your Disease. And I read it and I thought, gosh, that really tells what it's like. So I researched and found out the person who wrote that, who happens to be my co-author in the book, his name is Heiko Ganser, and he's a licensed certified social worker and um, an addictions and substance abuse counselor at Phoenix Psychotherapy online and I emailed him and told him how much I loved what he had written and I was thinking of writing a book and could I use that as the title because I thought it really, really did show exactly what it's like. And this was back in October of six, a year and a half ago, and people weren't really recognizing it as a disease quite yet. But he Heiko did and I took that title 
And that's my website name, and it's the title of the book, I Am Your Disease, The Many Faces of Addiction. And in it is Heiko's narrative, I Am Your Disease by the Anonymous Addict. And what he did is combine many of his patients and put them into one person, so to speak, called the disease. And the disease speaks to you and explains why it is so darn hard to beat him, how he revels in having you chase two rabbits at the same time, how he makes it almost impossible to fulfill your dreams and goals, and how he loves it when you relapse. And it, it just really tells people exactly how hard it is to beat addiction. And I think every person, every family should read it. Is it long? No, it's not long. It's too long to read here, but it takes up about three pages in the book. Okay. So for for you, that was kind of an aha moment. Yes, it was. And I thought, this has to be the title of the book, because it just it, it spoke to my heart. It, it, I just thought everybody could identify with that. And I'm glad I did, because now more and more people are recognizing that it is a disease. Yes, there's been a quest to, to get that recognized for, for a number of years, and yes. um, there are a number of organizations, including Faces and Voices of Recovery, right. that have been working very diligently to help get this more mainstreamed. That's right. That's right. And we need that. We, we need people to understand this. And I always say education will be our salvation. We have to make people understand this is a disease. The addicted person doesn't want to be that way. Right. But they made a mistake, and unfortunately it's one that will follow them throughout the rest of their life, and it could be a very short life too. Right, right. So can you share with us some of the people in your book? Yes. Uh, there's, a, of course, everyone, there's 40 stories. Everyone, you know, breaks your heart. But I look at, and there's particularly two or three of them here. One woman lost her son, Jason, to uh, a bad LSD trip. He jumped out a window. And she tells very, here's just two short paragraphs here. She says, finally, 22 hours after his fall, I climbed into my son's hospital bed and lay my head on his chest with my arms around him. I placed my ear over his heart so I could listen to the heartbeat. And she goes on to say, when I was pregnant with Jason, the doctor placed a stethoscope on my tummy. Would you like to hear your baby's heartbeat? He asked. I heard the first heartbeats of my child that day. Now, 23 years later, I lay in a hospital bed with him, and once again I listened for his heartbeat. Only this time they were his last. And I don't care how many times I typed that and looked at it when I was doing the book, that still makes me cry every time I read it or think about it. But having to turn off life support for your child and lying there and listening to his last heartbeat, you know, it's just brutal. And I have another one here. Let me see if I can find another girl, uh, Pam, her son, uh, Keith. They, he laid in bed hospital bed, brain dead for nine days, and they finally had to uh, take life support off him, and she just crawled in bed with him and laid there and watched him, and how she describes, you know, what it's like to see someone die like that and gasping and, and jumping around in the bed, and then all of a sudden just die, you know, it's just, it's sad, this is what we're, these people have gone through, and uh, here's another story, this is a really sad one. 
Karen speaks about her son, Gino, and her son was missing for nine days, and they searched all over. He had, they knew he was a drug-addicted person. They'd been looking for him. But he had been taken to the morgue where his body laid for nine days until a funeral home called them to ask what they wanted done with their son's body. They didn't even know their son had been dead. Oh, my God. And then they get this from the funeral home. Nobody had bothered to contact them. So it's just one horror story after another. And what people go through, and, and people don't, a lot of people don't realize how devastating this is for the family. Now, my book does offer hope. It's not just all bad things. I have some poems in here, and I have some gentle tips on coping, how to get through this. And some parts are very uplifting, but it, it does show you what will happen to you if you do not commit 100% to your recovery. Right. right. One girl, uh, Samantha, she went to a private school in um, Connecticut. As a matter of fact, it was Miss Porter's school, which is the same school that Jackie Kennedy went to. And she was raised in a very privileged home, and she had horses. You know, they lived in the country. Uh-huh entry life, you know, just wonderful. She went to China. Her goal was to, support. she went to China to study. She came back. Her goal was going to be to help uh, inner city kids. She just loved them. She died of a heroin overdose. So it just shows that, you know, this can happen to anybody. And it does. Yes. Can you share with us some of the uh, the more uplifting part of your book? Well, I've got, um, like I said, I've got some nice poems in here. I've got uplifting things where people have written about their children. I've got um, the the passages where people talk about how to cope and that there there is hope if you will, you know, uh, dedicate yourself to this. But there, it's more of a story of showing you what happens if you don't commit to your recovery. Right. So it's, there's very little uplifting when you're talking about drug addiction. <laughs> right, right. But there is there is things uplifting about recovery, and people yes. do recover from drug addiction and live very um, healthy and fulfilling lives. And I and, think that's uh, yes. an important message to get across to people, too. It can be done. It, it absolutely can be done. And But like I said, you just have to commit to it. The person has to commit to it. Uh, we tried to make our son be well. We tried harder than he did. Right. And, and I think that happens in a lot of families. Because the addict, the, the addicted person, I hate to say addict because it right. sounds so bad, but the addicted person... They can't really do it on their own. So they look to us to help them. And, of course, as parents, we do everything we can to help them. But it's just really, it's up to them. But when you've got that 98% recidivism rate with heroin, you know, it's so difficult. Science needs to find a way to make the brain forget how good drugs make them feel. Right. And I think when, when... and they're working on that. They're coming up with a cocaine vaccine. And I, But I think when they finally can figure out a way to just make you completely forget, I think that will be the, the answer. In the meantime, it's just struggle, struggle, struggle. 
Right. Um, last week we had on our show uh, Dr. Uh, Marshak from the Marshak Clinic, who's a right. Russian physician who's um, kind of uh, come up with this process for recovery that incorporates nutrition, yoga, yes. vitamins, and um, traditional kind of 12-step orientation. And Because in Russia they didn't have some of the things treatments that we that we had available to us and he's had about an eighty percent recovery rate with Whoa. heroin addicts. Oh um, that's wonderful. Yeah, but it's it's very much a holistic um treatment. Well and, I've heard that there's more and more holistic approaches to it and they're having success. Right. 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 But so they I think didn't have this. They didn't have this five right. over five years ago. Right. Right. Well especially with heroin addiction, um you know, I think any addiction is bad enough, but with heroin addicts or opiate, actually opiate addicts, yes. people who are addicted to opiates, um, there seems to be even more stigma. Oh, um, yeah. I know, in at least in the Northeast, most of the people who are going to methadone clinics are people, they're not heroin addicts, they're people who are opiate addicted as a result of pain medication. Oh, yeah. You yeah, there, there is more, as a matter of fact, uh, prescription pills, legal drugs, are killing more people now in this country than cocaine and heroin. Right. Right. So that's a very big problem, and they are the, they're they're depending on these uh, you know the oxycontin and so forth. They're, they're becoming addicted to that. One man came to a talk that I gave, and he said he had never been addicted. He'd never tried anything, but he got injured, and his doctor gave him oxycontin. He said, whereas Really, he could have had his pain relieved by something less potent, mm-hmm. but he took it, he trusted his doctor, and now he is addicted to oxy. So we're, we're just having more and more of this in the country, and it's really, really scary how many people are dying from the, the opiates, from pills they're either they're getting from the medicine cabinet, they're stealing their parents' pills. Right. Uh, there's such things as farm parties, P-H-A-R-M, for pharmaceuticals where the kids, you know, grab whatever pills they can and then they go to parties and they put these pills in a bowl and they all take handfuls of them. You know, some are uppers, some are downers. You know, they don't know what they are. But this is what's going on in the country and it's very, very scary. That is scary. Um, In your book, what are some of the things that people do to cope? Okay, let me see. Well, one of the main things is it's very important for people, family members to talk about their their deceased child. So having open communication is an important part of coping. Yeah. Have your child's name mentioned. There's nothing worse than having your child deceased and nobody will talk about him. Right, right. We'll be right back with our um, remaining segment with uh, Sherry McGinnis, and we're going to talk a little bit more about how families can cope with disease of addiction. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center Recovery for Co-Occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. The incidence of autism has increased at an alarming rate. Autism One, a conversation of hope, hosted by Betsy Hicks, illuminates how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Autism is treatable, and given appropriate therapies, children are recovering. With well-known researchers and doctors, members of Congress, and expert service providers from a wide range of disciplines, Betsy offers interviews and insights highlighting the progress in areas related to autism spectrum disorders such as biomedical research and treatment, communication, education, and behavioral modalities, adult services, sociological and philosophical issues, and legislative advocacy and insurance concerns. Autism One, a conversation of hope, broadcast each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Autism One, a conversation of hope. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to our show today. We're talking with uh, Sherry McGinnis, who's been um, sharing with us excerpts from her book, I Am Your Disease, The Many Faces of Addiction. And before we went to commercial, we were talking about um, how people can cope with this and their family. And you were talking, Sherry, about the importance of um, communication. Yes, and having your deceased child's name mentioned a lot of the people in my grief support groups are very upset because even their own families will not talk about their child. And to be fair to some of the people who won't talk about the child, they tend to think, well, uh, we don't want to hurt you anymore. We don't want to make you cry. You know, we don't want to make you sadder than you are. But they can't make us any sadder than we right. already are unless they don't talk about our child. It, if you don't talk about it, it's as if they never lived, and, and they did live. You know, they lived and they loved and they were loved. Right. So we need to keep talking about them. And that's that's how you celebrate their life and validate their life. And to, yes. And to not talk about them just rein, reinforces the bad child um, right. unworthiness of the person. That's right. And, and, and they were worthy. They were right. all worthy. and. Right. You know, they were loved. <laughs> yeah. Are there other things people can do to cope? Yes. Um, one of the things that really helps is keeping very busy. You don't want to leave your 
mind too much time to think because in the beginning, especially the first the first year, pretty much you're numb, you're in shock. The second year, reality hits hits you, and you realize that hey, this is never going away. This is something that I have to live with for the rest of my life. So it's very difficult. After that, I think you start to get a little bit stronger, but it helps to keep as active as possible. Uh, talk to your friends. Uh, what's good is if your children's friends will come around and talk to you. Uh, one woman, her son Brett died, and she said to all of her son's friends, each of you has a piece of my son in your brain. It is a memory of his words, actions, and heart. Please share those memories with me, or they'll be forever lost. And that's true. There are so many things out there that people do know about your child that you might not know, and it just feels so good to hear about them. So it's important to reach out to people. They may not reach out to you, so you have to reach out to them, get them talking about your child. You keep busy. Um, writing the book helped me. It, it made me cry every day, but, I mean, it, it was something to do. It helped take my mind off poor, poor me when I realized, you know, how many other poor, poor people there are out there who are suffering the same as I am. So keeping busy is the main thing. Uh, you can plant memorial gardens. I've got a beautiful pond in my backyard with a garden with my son's picture because we had him cremated, so there's no grave to go through, and that's a personal choice what people want to do. So just do whatever you can, you know, if anything that makes you happy. And even though you may not feel as happy as you used to, you can still get some measure of happiness eventually. And and you have to do it, and you have to honor their memory, and you have to remember also your child does not want you to live the rest of your life being sad. And for our listeners out there, I really want to underscore something that Sherry said earlier in terms of we understand addiction better than we did five, six, seven years ago, that there is treatment that is effective for people with addiction. Um, for There's medication that can help with cravings for, for people. There's opiate replacement therapy that can either be um, replaced with methadone or um, buprenorphine. That has proven to be very effective. There are self-help groups um, for folks. And the most important thing for all family members to understand and realize is that this is a disease. It's a chronic disease. And all chronic diseases affect families, whether it's heart disease, diabetes, lung disease, or addiction. And that you, as a family member, you need to find a way to um, take care of yourself as well as care for the person in your family that has the addiction and that um, that people with addiction need love and support, too. It's just important how you give them the love and support. Um, that, you know, they uh, you are their lifeline. And um, when the treatment providers go away, you're the person who's left, and um, you need to get the support that you can find so that you can help your family member the best way you can. Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's ironic you should say that, Mary, because uh, a friend of mine, her son died three months before my son died. He also died of addiction, and he had an overdose. And when it happened to me, she told me, she said, you have to treat yourself as if you were in intensive care 
because that's what you need right now. You need intensive care. And I did. You know, there were days when I couldn't even get out of bed. I couldn't do anything. And it was just, oh, well, I'm sorry. The world will have to go along without me right now because right now I am too busy. I'm, I have to take care of me. Right. And, and it is. It's so important to take care of yourself. Right. And especially when your family member is alive and in the throes of their addiction. That um, I just want people to understand that there is hope for people who have addictions. And yes. that... Um, you know, we can, um, it takes a community, as we were saying earlier, and um, and it takes 24-hour supervision and vigilance. And as Sherry said, that people need a commitment to stay sober, but there are many things we can do to engage people in treatment, um, and there are many treatments that can be effective. That's right. We have to try, you know, what works for one person may not work for another. Right. And there are a lot of treatments out there. There are people who are managing to overcome this. But my book, basically, I want people to see that they're not alone. And and I get so many emails from people telling me how much my book has helped them to understand exactly what they're going through. And now they're understanding what their child went through. Right. So that they've gone beyond the anger at their child to having a lot more sympathy and understanding of what they went through now. And, and it's so important for families to understand that it's not the family that causes the addiction. Right. Addiction is a brain disease. And what your book does is provide a form for people who feel very isolated and disconnected from their community or right. from their, their social network because of the stigma and discrimination of addiction. That's right. And, and another thing that really does help, too, Mary, is our good um, support groups online. There are good groups. You know, there's compassionate friends where you can go to actual physical meetings, but I really like the support groups online because, you know, if you're having a meltdown at 3 o'clock in the morning, you can just get on the computer and sit there and type. Even if none of your other friends are on right then, you're still getting it out of your system. And then when someone does come online, they email you back and, you know, you commiserate. And yeah, it, I, I really strongly recommend online support groups to those who have computers. It's, it's a, it's, you can touch people all over the world that way. Yes. Yeah. Um, Sherry, how can people get in touch with you? Well, my uh, website is uh, www.iamyourdisease.com. All one word, iamyourdisease.com. And you enjoy talking with groups and... Uh, oh, yeah. You're yeah, available I, for... Yeah, I do. I... I was uh, interviewed on our local TV station. Uh, I've done several radio interviews. There's a show called Prescription Addiction Radio. I've been on that, and I'm going to be on it again next week. And yeah, I enjoy talking to people because I'm I'm stronger now. In the beginning, I couldn't do anything. I just clung to everybody, and they had to take care of me. And as you've so eloquently show, shared with us is that recovery is a process and that it takes time and that it takes the support in, of other people to really heal and get through the yes. loss that you experienced as a result of addiction. I want to thank you so much today for being on our show and sharing with us your phenomenal experience and your strength thank you. and your hope. Thank you, Mary. It was my pleasure. And if you have any questions for Sherry, you can contact her at IamYourDisease.com, and I know she would love to hear from you. 
Thank you all and have a good week. Thank you. appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.